Thank you again for joining me here on the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. Before we launch into the content of this episode, I want to give a quick shout out to a really great website. It's actually more than a website. It's kind of a network, really. And it's celebrating its fifth anniversary. The Poached Egg is the Christian Worldview and Apologetics Network of Ratio Christi and is dedicated to bringing you some of the latest and greatest academic work that is done in the field of Christian apologetics and philosophy. You can listen to podcasts there, you can read articles, even a couple by myself, and even get some really great book deals. So head on over to thepoachedegg.net and see what they have to offer for you there. Okay, but now on with our show. In this episode, we will continue our series on Bible atrocities by exploring slavery and the laws of the Old Testament. It's a bit longer of an episode, so hang in tight and enjoy this show on Bible atrocities. He knows there's no end to his suffering, and that is suffering itself. Just to know that there will never be a time when hell will turn him loose. The Bible says that Sodom and Gomorrah were burned with fire and brimstone, and the thousands of balls of sulfur, and the burnt buildings, and the burnt suffix, and the burnt cigarette confirm that, yes they were. He is in a horrible place. Horror like horror has never been known. Let the horror of knowing that you're going to burn forever flood through your soul. I mean, they're just, they're animals. And it's funny because sometimes these sodomite activists, these queer activists, will sometimes say things like, oh, but you know, it's natural, Pastor Anderson, because the animals do it. And I always say this, well, you know, I've always said that you guys were animals, so, you know, you're just proving my point right now. Let the horror to know that you're in a dark pit and you'll never have relief from that. That is hell enough for you and hell enough for anyone. In our last episode, we explored the cultural background of slavery in the ancient Near East, specifically the social and cultural milieu in ancient Israel. We explored the fact that the concept of slavery in the Old Testament is colored by our own history of antebellum or New World slavery during the African slave trade, and that when we come up against passages dealing with terms like slaves and slavery in ancient Israel, what we're actually dealing with is something much more like the indentured or debt or bond servitude of the early colonists. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, uh, specifically the, the first one in the series on shall not the, the Lord of all the earth do what is just, and then the previous one on slavery, uh, I recommend pausing it here and going back and listening to that. Uh, in the first one, we discussed the kind of objection and moral assumptions that must take place in order for the skeptic or the anti-biblicist to object that slavery in the Bible even is immoral or that it somehow contradicts the concept of an all-loving God. In this episode, we're going to move from the general cultural background and textual themes that we looked at last time into specific passages in the Old Testament dealing with the casuistic laws in the Mosaic sections dealing specifically with the issues of servitude in the Old Testament. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term casuistic, a casuistic law is basically case law or case-based jurisprudence. They're, they're kind of, uh, they're laws that give specific scenarios, they, they, or they give uh, paradigmatic examples from which broader principles can be applied to other analogous situations. We're going to see this more clearly as we work our way through some of these passages. 
I'd also at this point uh, like to again remind my listeners that I'm not trying to argue uh, in this episode or in this series for anything like biblical inerrancy or inspiration of the Bible or even that it's, it's wholly accurate in all of its historical assertions. Um, <clears throat> I'm not arguing that the law proves the existence of an ultra-loving, omnibenevolent being known as Yahweh or God. I'm simply arguing that we must read these laws, surprise, surprise, as law. That is, in the category of literature known as law or legal writings, rather than as a set of sporadic or unconnected series of sayings or proverbs that have no real specific historical, cultural, or literary context or relation to each other. What this means is that in the same way that the U.S. legal system has laws that add depth, scope, application, etc. to other laws, and then we have future jurisprudence that enunciate those principles, we cannot read these laws as free-floating or in, in isolation from the other laws of the Old Testament. As we will see, there are possible readings of the law where the application itself would violate other laws, which means we can rule those interpretations out as viable readings of the original law. We'll see uh, and concentrate on some examples of this as we move along, but I want to state this from the, uh, from the get-go. Because I think that a lot of the most hostile quote-unquote interpretations of the law put out by skeptics these days, such as EvilBible.com or Iron Chariots or Rational Wiki or whatever, make this very mistake by casting the law in the worst possible light, ignoring that if an ancient Israelite held their idiosyncratic interpretation of that specific law, they would actually be in a violation of a dozen other laws. Um, now, with that important caveat out of the way, let's take a dive uh, in and look at the relevant passages dealing with servanthood in the Old Testament. I'd also like to point out at this time that a persistent theme in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the law, that's what Pentateuch means, five books or five, five words, five laws, uh, and specifically, we're going to look at the legal codes. Um, that God, one of the major themes that God had redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. The importance of this theme really can't be overstated. This, this theme is explicitly used at least 14 times, which is a lot. And often the injunctions to treat slaves with equity is supported by the refrain, something along the lines of, quote, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you, end quote. Or another one, quote, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this, end quote. Or some other such permutation on that, on that kind of theme. In addition to these explicit reminders to Israel of her time of captivity in Egypt, there are a dozen other allusions to their time in bondage. The concept is clear that God desired Israel to remember how they suffered as slaves in Egypt, who did practice something much more like the African slave uh, trade in that it was extremely brutal and slaves had no rights whatsoever. Now, there have been some recent findings showing that substantial labor forces in Egypt that were used, specifically in the Valley of the Kings, were not actually slaves. But uh, that shouldn't really be used to infer that no labor forces were. We know, for example, on some of the pyramids, uh, they use contracted labor. But just because that was what's used on, on that specific building project, it doesn't mean that that was 
all of the labor that was used for the building projects uh, in that area or in Egypt as a whole. Uh, though even in the Bible, there are some notable examples such as Joseph, who was technically a slave in Potiphar and Pharaoh's house, but really second in power and wealth to only Pharaoh himself. God wanted the Israelites to remember their bondage in Egypt and enjoin them not to treat any servant in their land with the same brutal oppression. We will see this in more detail when we analyze the verses to come. What follows is a list of the most, most of the casuistic laws regarding slavery in the Mosaic Law, with a series of comments regarding each and a couple of non-legal passages that are going to help shed some light on the jurisprudence of ancient Israelite law. This will be much more list and response rather than kind of a developed interconnected exegesis, and this list isn't going to be exhaustive. However, what it will do is show us the importance of doing research when dealing with the Old Testament, just as it is important in dealing with any ancient text. We saw in the previous episode on the anti-intellectual and atheistic fundamentalism that has seen a dramatic rise and a kind of aversion to research and academic study when, whenever the Bible is concerned. And so what one is left with is a kind of uneducated and flat reading of the English text where verses are read as if they're kind of free-floating proverbs with no historical, literary, cultural, or theological context. That is, if, if God didn't mean to the ancient Israelites exactly what we would want him to say, then, then it's just absurd. Uh, we should never read any text that way, let alone ancient ones. So let's get into these texts. Number one, Exodus 21, 20 to 21. Is this a manual for beating slaves? I recently read on one of my favorite atheistic fundamentalist Facebook pages, uh, uh, this comment, quote, most Christians believe that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the same jealous and angry God that abhorred homosexuals and condemned them as an abomination. He's the same deity that gave instructions on how to beat slaves and the same divine creator that suggested the stoning of non-believers and disobedient children. You have to accept the good along with the bad after all. He came not to abolish the Hebrew laws, but to fulfill them, Matthew 5.17. Now, I'm not actually going to respond to the full comment because it just would lead us way outside of the scope of this episode. But what I want to do is select the one clause that shows that this kind of rhetoric is often so blinded by bias, so uneducated, and so just ignorant, that it's surprising that anyone who claims to be a critical thinker or a skeptic actually buys into it. But sadly, so many people do and will continue to parrot it as if it's just this obviously true fact about the Bible. The post that I just quoted for you got so much congratulatory backpattery, so much us versus them, hear hears, and a whole host of new bigoted comments to go along with it, that one would think this person had said something deeply profound or that it had some ironclad refutation of Christianity. In fact, he may even be drawing this directly from Rational Wiki, which asserts basically the same thing, showing why Rational Wiki is less helpful, and ironically less rational, than just plain old Wikipedia. To anti-theistic fundamentalists like this, their confirmation bias will also tell them that it is because of blind faith and the irrationalism of religious belief that will keep religious people from following such tight logic. 
The fact is that no reasonable person, let alone a religious one, will be swayed by it because it's just nonsense. So the clause that I want to look at as the prime example is the clause where the atheistic fundamentalist pundit writes, quote, he is the same deity that gave instructions on how to beat slaves, end quote. Here he's referencing Exodus 21.20, which we'll turn to now. In order to read the whole context, I'm going to read through to verse 27. This will help us see just why this anti-theist won't find anyone with even the most nominal critical reading skills cheering him on when he makes statements like he has. The whole passage reads, quote, Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two, since the slave is their property. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. An owner who hits a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. And an owner who knocks out a tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. End quote. I'm not going to here go into all the detail of the historical and socioeconomic background of debt or bond servitude in the Old Testament since we did that in the last episode. So again, if you've forgotten all of, all of that that was said last time, I recommend pausing here and listening to the previous episode again before moving on. So what can we say about this specific objection based on this verse? Well, first, we have to remember the genre of literature we are reading. This portion of Exodus is a genre of literature known as a legal code. More specifically, it is a casuistic law code. That means that these are case laws from which general principles are derived. So it gives for instance kinds of laws that are not meant to exhaust all options, but rather they serve as illustrative cases or exemplars of the kinds of things that are and are not permitted by the legal code. We'll see the importance of this here in just a moment. Second, let's break down exactly what each of these three laws is saying. So this whole section, verses 20 to 27, uh, is actually three laws. So law number one is verses 20 to 21. It basically says that if someone has a servant and they beat that servant to death, then the family of the servant has the right to seek retributive capital justice, a life for a life. This means that a landowner cannot beat his servant to death without himself being put to death. If the servant does not die, then the family cannot seek capital justice. The landowner cannot be put to death for it. Now, does this mean that the landowner can beat a servant to within an inch of his life and be perfectly innocent as long as the servant doesn't die? Hardly, and we're going to see that when we, when we continue through laws 2 and 3. Law number 2, which spans verses 22 to 25, says that if people are fighting and they accidentally cause a pregnant woman to go into labor, but the child is fine, then there can't be retributive capital judgment, but rather 
a fine that is deemed proper by the courts is to be levied. But if there's serious injury, for example, the child dies, then it's murder and it's life for a life. Or, as the law specifically states, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, burn for a burn, wound for a wound, or bruise for a bruise. That is, the second law does not limit the principle, what's called the lex talionis in Latin, which literally means the law of the tooth, to just eyes and teeth. This, this middle law that's sandwiched between laws one and three is elucidating where the lex talionis can be expanded to. Right? It's not just eyes and teeth. So whenever we see the lex talionis used later, in other laws, we understand that it's not just talking about eyes and teeth, right? The second law shows us that the lex talionis has an injury of any kind in view. Eyes and teeth are just given as exemplars. They're, they're clear examples. But the law is not limited to eyes and to teeth, okay? So hopefully that makes sense, because now we're coming to law number three, which is verses 26 and 27. This states that if a landover hits a servant, male or female, and they're injured, right? Because in light of law two and the lex talionis being expanded, this would include any injury. So even though the law talks about eyes and teeth, right, we saw that the lex talionis expands beyond eyes and teeth. So if they're injured of any kind, then the lex talionis applies to them as well. Okay, so if the owner uh, beats a servant of any kind and causes any wound or any damage, the landowner is to let the servant go free and to forgive all their debt. Because remember, to set them free was to cancel debt in this time period. Because in Israel, debt is what caused servitude, right? You were a debt servant. You weren't just, they didn't just practice chattel slavery in Israel. But it's also the landowner is meant to compensate them for any harm done. Think of this like the first workman's comp law. If a servant is intentionally harmed on the job, all of their debts are canceled. Their family law would or family land that's that has been confiscated as part of the debt would be returned to them, and they'd be compensated for any harm done. We saw in the last episode that the freeing of slaves with compensation would often include food, grain, and livestock. <clears throat> which means when in law number three. When the servant is being freed, they're being freed and being paid for their lost time, for their injury, and they're being given food, grain, and livestock. So, what we see when we read these laws all together, as we should read all legal codes in context anyways, is not a manual for how Jews were allowed to beat a slave. Ironically, it's actually the exact opposite. This law actually grants rights to the servant. It doesn't eliminate them, as the skeptic would assert. Unlike all other ancient Near Eastern slave codes, in which slaves were property and an owner could kill at their discretion, this was not the case in Israel. The servant had an inherent right to life, as we saw in Job in the last episode, due to the servant also being made in the image of God and thus having the same human worth before God, and that not even their master had the right to violate it. In fact, they, they, they didn't only have the right to life, they had the right to remain unmolested or unharmed, and the master couldn't circumvent that right by this law. 
Yet the verse also protects the master from unnecessary blood feuds, right? That's the point of the main law that the skeptic appeals to. If the servant doesn't die, then the family can't seek capital punishment, right? That's just not the end of the story. You're supposed to read that law in light of the two laws that follow, directly follow in the exact same passage. These are laws which function to actually protect servants from harsh landowners. They had a right to life and a right to not be beaten. If a landowner beat their slave to death, then that landowner would be punished by death. However, if the landowner beat his servant, but that servant didn't die, but he caused, obviously if he's beating him, he's causing a wound or a harm of some kind, then that servant would still, under laws two and three, be set free with his debt forgiven and, be, and he'd be given added compensation. So to say that this is a manual for how to beat a slave is simply as wholly inaccurate as a person reading Hamlet who comes away thinking that they just read a comedy on the plight of 20th century hipsters. We can look at someone like Sam Harris who shows that he totally misses the point as usual when he writes, quote, the only real restraint God counsels on the subject of slavery is that we not beat our slaves so severely that we injure their eyes or their teeth, Exodus 21, end quote. As we have seen, and we'll see further when we keep looking at these laws, there are all kinds of legal protections uh, put in place for servants. But in this case, the passage clearly states that a servant has the same rights to physical protection as any other free citizen. For Harris to think that the lex talionis only applies to eyes and teeth shows that he's just willing to swallow the camel of hyperliteralism to strain at the gnat of biblical inerrancy. Anyone who reads the law so narrowly as to think that the law of the eye, uh, well, the lex talionis, the law of eye for an eye, only applies to eyes and not to bones or bruises or fingers or toes or skin damage, anything, the principle being that one may not harm another person physically or otherwise without just reprisal, though that reprisal cannot exceed the crime, well, he's simply not learned how to read very well. In the light of this, the principle is that if an owner harms a servant, damages an eye, loosens a tooth, breaks a bone, causes a wound, then they are required by the law to let the servant go immediately and erase any debt that the servant might still owe the master. For skeptics like Harris to read this verse as if it's granting permission to the owner to beat the servants up to the point of death or to losing an eye or a tooth is just so absurd that it's almost bizarre that anyone takes these people seriously. It is simply a case of cherry picking where they read the verse to the exclusion of all of its surrounding context, historical, literary, socioeconomic, and so on, and exclude all other relevant laws. Now, in addition to this, some scholars, such as the ancient Near Eastern Hittologist scholar from the University of Chicago, Harry Hoffner, argue that the correct rendering of the passage is not, quote, for he is his property, end quote, but rather that, quote, for it is his property, end quote, and refers to the fee that is prescribed in Exodus 21, 18 to 19, the section just after this, dealing with the penalties for accidental killings, which states, quote, If men have a quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but remains in bed, 
If he gets up and walks around outside on his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. He shall only pay for his lost time, and he shall take care of him until he is completely healed. End quote. This carries over into the verse of the owner beating a servant. In that case, the owner is not only required to set the servant free, according to verses 22 to 25, but also to pay for any care needed until the servant is able to go on their way and any wages due to him for the loss of time working. And yes, they were paid. They were just paid half time until the debt was repaid. So not only would the owner lose the debt that the servant owed to him when he canceled it, but he would also be forced to pay for the care of the injured servant and any wages that the servant would have received if he had been working. And we talked about the grain and, and the livestock and so forth. It turns out that injuring a servant could be extremely costly to the owner and very illegal. Now, I readily admit that this does nothing like show that God exists or that the Bible is inspired, but all too often these self-professed quote-unquote free or critical thinking skeptics will buy anything that's said in a witty and inflammatory manner or in a, in a short little pithy meme so long as it mocks religion and gives them a platform to join the club to make fun of us godtards. Yet, just a rudimentary level of reading comprehension would show that the atheistic fundamentalist is completely unable to be objective and unbiased with regards to these passages. If that is the kind of summary of the law that we see in Exodus 21:21, which is a relatively simple and clear passage, right? I mean, that, that I didn't have to go into any of the original languages or anything to understand this verse. I just had to read the three laws in a row together. Uh, it, it, this is a relatively clear passage. If this is their summary that they and their followers actually find convincing, then why should we or anyone expect them to do any better on more complex texts requiring a deeper and more nuanced understanding of the historical, socioeconomic, religious, literary, original language, or any other context involved in a text? I often ask them to name any scholar, any academic commentary that would agree with their reading of the text as an instruction manual for how to beat a servant. Never have I been given one. Not once. Never. I highly doubt that this quote-unquote skeptic is being very skeptical of their own statements or has done any research on the text whatsoever, but is rather just pulling them from web pages like evilbible.com or, or Rational Wiki or Iron Chariots or from any other internet infidel type of atheistic meme. Likely, he's just parroting the kind of anti-intellectualism that has come commonplace these days in online atheism. Maybe he saw it in a funny meme somewhere and has just unreflectively passed it on. And yet, we can observe just how many of these quote-unquote skeptics uncritically agree when people write stuff like this and use it as a launching pad for their own intolerant screeds. Number two, Exodus 12, 43-45, a part of the family. Exodus 12, 43-45 reads, quote, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. End quote. Now, this was 
uh, giving the, the Passover instructions before they were freed from Egypt. I've included this verse here simply to point out that, that even before the law was given, there's already in germ form the concept that among the proto-Israelites that a slave was considered a part of the family unit. Once committed to the Israelite community via circumcision, they received the ultimate sign of the community, redemption by God, as pictured in the Passover meal. They were part of the redeemed people. They were not considered chattel. They experienced and shared in the same blessing that was the resounding theme that would come to define the Israelites for millennia to come, that God had saved them out of bondage in Israel and entered into covenant with them. While this verse does raise other issues outside of the scope of this series, such as why would circumcision be necessary, or, or why would God even judge Egypt in the first place, and so on, the impact of this verse on the subject at hand is telling. Servitude in Israel was not an us-them race-based chattel or brutalizing slavery like we saw in New World African slave trade. What we see is that the children of Israel were to welcome their servants into their homes for a Passover meal once they were included in Israel. The Passover meal, which was a remembrance of when God had delivered them into servitude, which we talked about last time, and, and God uh, God here is, is acting culturally subversive, right? He's acting in culturally subversive ways to show his people that slavery, which was simply a given in the ancient world, right? Nobody protested slavery, was against God's character. Now, imagine, what kind of cognitive dissonance was God purposefully creating by basically telling the Israelites that when they celebrate the joy and freedom and goodness of being freed from servitude, that they're to include their servants in that celebration. Right? Remember last time about God talking about how he wants no poverty, right? Which is a stand-in for no servitude, because you only in Israel you're only allowed to have servants based on poverty, based on based on debt. So including them into the joy of being freed and redeemed out of their servitude, right? God mandates the, 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 year, the Sabbath years and the years of Jubilee where they're to free all of their servants, cancel all their debt. And here they're supposed to invite their circumcised servants in to celebrate the remembrance of the beauty and, and, and joy that comes from being delivered from servitude. Right? What, what kind of cognitive dissonance does that do for the Israelite who's a landowner over a servant? Number three, Exodus 21, 2 to 6. Is this institutional misogyny? The verse reads, quote, If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you for six years. But on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, and he will bring him to the door and the, or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently." End quote. There are really a, a lot of problems that come up with this passage that we could talk about, uh, but we're only going to talk about a couple of them. First, it seems that it treats women as second class to men, and that appears to say that male servants may go free, 
but male servants can't. The second problem is that it seems to criminal to separate a family simply because they were married after both entering service to the owner. So let's look at these in order. First, is the law misogynistic? This is really simply a problem of failing to understand the kind of laws present in the Mosaic legal system. As we've stated, these are casuistic laws. That is, they're case laws. They're kind of for example, right? The law is not misogynistic simply because it refers to a male slave being freed, right? It's simply giving a case in point for the treatment of a servant married while in service to their owner. Many scholars have pointed this fact out and have stated that this gendered language is due to it being a more male-dominated ancient Near Eastern culture. And in, it's in the ancient equivalent of the American Declaration of Independence where it states that all men are created equal. Well, does that mean that the Declaration of Independence is misogynistic and saying that women aren't created equal? <laughs> well, while some argue that it meant men qua men, most have read it as simply a non-gendered or neutral language that referred to all humanity. So we have the same thing happening here in verses 2 through 6. This could easily refer to a female servant who has been married to a male during her time of servanthood. And we'll talk about why the marriage issue is a problem. Second, does this verse demand that an Israelite break up families simply because they quote-unquote own one of the partners? Not at all. There's something interesting to note in this verse is that it uses the term we're familiar with today, but was somewhat unusual at this point in the biblical narrative. It says, if you buy a Hebrew slave. Now, while we have come accustomed to calling ancient Jews Hebrews, this was not the common nomenclature during this point in Israel history. During this time, a Hebrew was actually a much broader term than an Israelite or a Jew. It meant basically an unaffiliated Semite, right? To the author, this person could well have been considered a foreigner or a non-citizen. This shed some new light onto the passage. So what we have here is a law requiring that an owner must set free even his foreign servant during the year of Sabbath. This will be important when we look at several other passages soon. But also, this law requires that if a Hebrew servant took a wife during his tenure as a servant, he's not allowed to take his wife or child with him at that time. There are a couple layers to this law that we need to look at. Firstly, if the Hebrew comes married already, there's no problem. As soon as he's served his time and his debt's paid, they all leave together. Yet if the owner gives him a wife, right, that's what the passage says, quote, gives him a wife, then several scenarios could have happened along the way. The owner could have arranged him to marry another Hebrew servant. This would mean that when the male servant finished his time of service, if his wife had not yet completed her service, he couldn't simply up and take his wife because she still owns debt to the owner. Right? There's no reason why he could not continue to serve or work as a hired hand until his wife completed her service and then if they choose, they could go on their way. The second layer of this is that if the owner arranged for the servant to marry a Jewish wife from his own family, say one of his own daughters, for example, in this case, the law regarding marrying outside of the Jewish community would come into effect. That is, they weren't supposed to do it. At this point in history, the Jews were not supposed to intermarry with the pagan neighbors. What is often overlooked at this point by skeptics is that the verse uh, says that the servant who loved his master and his wife had the option to become a permanent Jew. 
a permanent member of that family, actually. That's what the all in the ear was. He, he would take an external sign that he was committing himself to the service of the owner and would be set free to become ceremonially Jewish through the rite of circumcision and bound to the family, not only ceremonially, but through marriage as a son. What's often overlooked or completely ignored by the quote-unquote skeptic is that in cases where a Jewish man had only daughters, the inheritance would go to the daughters and then to their sons. If an owner married off his daughters to a foreigner and they had no and he had no sons to receive the inheritance, then his land would, if the foreign husband remained a foreigner, would no longer be an inheritance to him and his clan or to his tribe or to Israel at all. The land that God had given to them as a perpetual inheritance to the Jewish people, he would have given away to a foreigner. Right? Do you see how that inheritance kind of ties through? He he would not only be giving up land to foreigners, he would be depriving his entire family and future lineage of the land that was theirs by divine decree. This was one of the main points in the regulations surrounding the year of Jubilee. Right, Every 49 years, a reset button was hit, and all of the land was returned to the clan that had owned it originally by God's decree. So if they had gotten in debt and had to sell off the land at the year of Jubilee, it goes back to the original family. Yet, if the land had been given to a foreigner, right, the foreigner would be under no obligation to return that land. I mean, why would they? So this law actually has very little to do with the permanent possession of a foreign slave. And as we saw, there are numerous scenarios where this law actually has nothing to do with perpetual servanthood at all. But is actually a law intended to protect the inheritance of future generations to come from basically what amounts to bad property management of a previous generation. Now, whatever you think of this kind of law, whether you think it's good or bad or stupid or irrelevant or whatever, the point is that it's still a far cry from what we saw in New World African slave trade. In New World slavery, an African slave would never be permitted to leave after six years debt-free. They definitely would never be permitted to marry a white woman, uh, and over the slave owner's dead body would they ever be given the opportunity to become part of the family with full inheritance rights. In this case, we have a foreign servant being granted freedom after six years and possibly being permitted to become not only a Jew, but also marry into the family and have full rights of inheritance. Number four, Exodus 21, 7-11. Is this sex trafficking or arranged marriage? The verse reads, If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master, who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her according to the customs of daughters. If he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. End quote. Now, considering the laws we've read above, we should instantly be tipped off that something else is happening 
besides a kind of sex trafficking or misogyny when it says that a female slave doesn't go free as a male slave do. Because in the previous law, we saw that they're set free whether they're male or female, right? Remember, whether they're male or female, they're set free at, at the year of Jubilee. They're set free if they're harmed, right? All that kind of stuff. So something else is going on. But many critics will cast this passage as if it's referring to some kind of sex trafficking where a man can treat his daughter as a sex object for profit to pay off family debt, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. In sex slavery, the woman is forced and subjugated to rape in underground slave trades, abused by multiple men, they have zero rights, and are usually murdered after their usefulness is done. Right? This is clearly not a passage talking about sex trafficking. Right? The real issue seems to be that of a lack of freedom on behalf of the woman in her right to choose who she weds. Right? Something that is a barrier to us in, 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 the, in the, how we live in the 21st century in the romance culture uh, is to, that marriages to us are primarily about love, romance, and happiness. Right? For better or for worse, this is simply not the cultural milieu of the overwhelming majority of cultures throughout history. While husbands and wives would often come to have quite committed and tender loving relationships over time, even, even after arranged marriages, marriage was a means of supporting and protecting one's family, your inheritance, and, and having longevity of, of your lineage. Now, while we may bristle at the thought of arranged marriages here in, in the late modern West, this is simply not a problem for a large portion of people who will read this text the world over throughout history. So, that might not actually be a problem. Secondly, what we see in the passage is actually a strong protection of the daughters in these arranged marriages. Right? That might sound weird, but it's true. While the term slave is used in this passage, I'm not really convinced that this is actually referring to a kind of servanthood that we've, we've discussed above. Now, while it's possible that a father might arrange a marriage without a dowry in order to expunge a debt, right? It's also possible that this merely refers to any arranged marriage. This view is supported considering that wives often express themselves as quote-unquote servants to their husbands, not only in the Bible, but in all kinds of ancient Near Eastern texts. This was not because of some ownership or lack of legal rights, but because they simply did a lot of work around the land, to be honest. They, they cooked and they cleaned, they harvested, they did entertaining, they did all kinds of stuff, right? The role of the woman was simply really different in many ways than the role of women and the way women uh, are viewed in society today. Again, this can raise a whole host of other questions, but for the purpose of this episode, the woman, by simply becoming a wife, could easily be called a servant in such a context. Now, I would also argue that considering the New Testament view of mutual submission of husband to wife and, and wife to husband, the husband could also be, be called a servant. So, so this isn't really a misogynistic view that women should be barefoot pregnant in the kitchen. This view is also supported by the statement at the beginning of the passage, quote, she is to pay off, uh, or, sorry, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. Now, while critics may try to read this as saying that a female slave has less rights than a male slave, we're actually going to see that the passage clearly has marital status in mind. And thus, this stipulation is here simply to stop a get-out-of-jail-free card from the husband. 
The man could not simply use her for six years and then give her up in shame to go back home, no longer a virgin, and have a much harder time getting married a second time. What is interestingly overlooked about this passage, however, is the rights that are given to the wife, who we will now see is clearly considered a wife and not just a house servant or a sex slave. Right? Firstly, if the owner is displeased with her, is what the text says, he must allow her to be redeemed by her family. Right? He is expressly told that he cannot treat her as his property and resell her or retrade her to someone else. Right? She's not his property to do so. He must allow her to return to the family. Secondly, if she's given in an arranged marriage to the man's son, she must be given all the rights of a full daughter. He cannot say that because the marriage was arranged in such a way that the dowry paid off her father's debt, that she is somehow less than a real daughter and more of a servant or like a house servant. Thirdly, if the marriage was for him and the husband decides to take another spouse, which again raises a lot of other questions that are beyond the scope of this series since polygamy elsewhere is, is not allowed, then he cannot treat her as less than a full spouse. Right? He can't decrease her food or her clothing or what the text calls her conjugal rights. Now, her conjugal rights, which is the Hebrew word uh, yonah, a term found only here in the Old Testament, doesn't necessarily have the sexual overtones that we have for it now when we think of, say, conjugal prison visits. Now, while, while that's most certainly included as a part of her rights as a wife, right, the, the, the sexual intimacy that would allow her to build, bear children and have seed and inheritance to take care of her in her old age, this word is closely tied to her ability to bear sons that will ensure that her lineage uh, has the right to inheritance of everything that was originally the husband's, but it also includes all of her rights as a wife in the daily operations and decisions of the home, right? So it's not just sex and bearing children, it's also that kind of, uh, that kind of matriarch uh, responsibility and respect within the home. All that was included uh, within this term conjugal rights. Now, it's here that we see that at any time the husband fails to grant any of these rights to his wife, she must be permitted to go free without any cost to her or her family, right? While this law does seem kind of foreign to us, that's because it is. It is foreign. It's under the arranged marriage rubric, which we're not used to. It's under a, a, a rubric of inheritance and, and, and primogeniture and, and, and the role of the first wife and so forth that we're just not used to. Right? Therefore, while we may struggle to understand arranged marriages, especially ones in the ancient Near Eastern context, to say that this verse permits sex slavery fails on nearly all levels and shows that the critic has simply failed to do their homework. Number five, Exodus 21, 28-32, the goring of a servant. The, per the passage says, quote, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring and its owner has been warned, yet he does not confine it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. 
If a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. Whether it gores a son or a daughter, it shall be done to him according to the same rule. If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. End quote. Now, <clears throat> first, it should be pointed out that in this case, no skeptic ever really cites this verse because it fundamentally undermines their argument. In this passage, we see several casuistic laws again. Number one, an ox gores a person to death and the ox is to be stoned. Right, the owner is left unpunished uh, no matter what uh, because uh, he's, not, he's not responsible. It's the first time the ox has done this. Right? There's, there's, there's not even any fiscal punishment for, for the owner of the ox except that he loses the, the ox, the price of the ox. Number two, an ox with a history of goring, if that ox gores a person, the ox is stoned and the owner is put to death. Right? This is because he's complicit in the murder because he failed to stone the ox the first time it gored someone in accordance with the law, or even to confine it so they couldn't do it again. That is, he's morally culpable for the subsequent death due to his own negligence. Yet, if the grieved family simply demands some kind of ransom, a price to pay in place of the life, right? They don't want to seek his life, but they want a ransom. Then he must pay whatever they demand. Number three, if the ox gores someone's servant, then the owner has no option but to pay the ransom demanded by the law, 30 shekels. Notice that the punishment for the owner of the ox is steeper if the ox gores a servant. Right? If the ox gores a citizen and doesn't have a history of it, then the owner is not required to pay any fine. But if the ox gores a servant and does not have a history of it, then the owner is required to pay a ransom price. In this case, the law gives more protection to the servant and to the servant's landowner because they're not only viewed as person, but their debt is part of the economy of the whole nation. Number six, Leviticus 22.11, Breaking Bread Together. The passage reads, quote, no layman, however, is to eat of the holy gift. A sojourner with the priest or a hired man shall not eat of the holy gift. But if a priest buys a slave as his property with his money, that, he, that one may eat of it, and those who are born in his house may eat of his food. End quote. Leviticus 22.11 This is again another passage that no skeptic really ever sings, seems to bring up. The reason is that it's another law that seems to give special privilege to, ser to, to servants and slaves. In this case, if a Levite has a servant, and that servant is permitted to eat of the offerings given to support the Levites, whereas not even hired men or, or regular Israelites could eat it. In fact, when we read on in this passage, we see that if his daughter has married a non-Levite, then not even she nor her husband's family could eat of the offering, right? So even his own daughter, if she's married outside of the family, can no longer eat of, of, of the offering, but his servant still can, right? So these offerings could only be consumed by Levites and their servants. This was indeed a special privilege and hardly an oppressive view of servants. Number seven, Leviticus 25, 39 to 55. Is this ancient xenophobia? This is kind of a long passage, so bear with me. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor 
with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if you, he were a sojourner. He shall serve you with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, and he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family, that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. You shall not rule over him with severity, but are to revere your God. As you, for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Then, too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens among you that you may gain acquisition, and out of their families who are with you, whom they will have produced in your land. They may also become your possessions. You may, have, you may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. But in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. Now, if this means of a stranger or of a sojourner with you becomes sufficient, and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you, or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him. Or, if he prospers, he may redeem himself. He then, uh, with his purchaser, shall calculate from the year when he sold himself to him up to the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall correspond to the number of years. It is like the days of a hired man that he shall be with him. If there are still many years, he shall refund part of his purchase price in proportion to them for his own redemption. And if a few years remain until the year of Jubilee, he shall so calculate with him in proportion to his years that he is to refund the amount of his redemption. Like a man hired year by year, he shall be with him. He shall not rule over him with severity in your sight. Even if he is not redeemed by these means, he shall still go out in the year of Jubilee, he and his sons with him. For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. End quote. Now there's a lot of interesting things to notice in that passage, but ultimately does the passage teach that foreign slaves could be bought and sold like livestock and kept into perpetuity? This is a rather long passage, and I'll tip to be as brief as possible. However, this is one of the more complex laws that we'll come across because in addition to this set of casuistic laws, we also have to examine several other passages that deal with foreigners and sojourners in Israel in general to get the overall biblical perspective on foreigners. We see that, contrary to Dawkins and others who cast the Old Testament as being fiercely ethnocentric and xenophobic, there are numerous laws and precepts in the Old Testament regarding the treatment of foreigners and sojourners, and all of them state that Israelites are to be kind, hospitable, and compassionate to outsiders who dwell within their borders. While outsiders could not own land in Israel, again due to the nature of the land belonging to God and then being distributed to the tribes of Israel, such that even one tribe could not own land that belonged to another tribe for longer than the 49 years before releasing it back in the year of Jubilee, 
there were many statutes that prescribed that Israelites were to love strangers as themselves, such as Leviticus 19, 33 to 34, and Deuteronomy 10, 19. There we see gleaning laws, right, that are, that are put into place that allowed for the provision of foreigners, right? We see these laws put into place about gleaning of harvests that protect foreigners from going into poverty and needing to subject themselves to servitude. We see this in, in passages like Deuteronomy 14, 21. And there are other passages that are put in place to keep foreigners from becoming poor and thus subjected to servitude in Israel in the first place, such as Deuteronomy 24, 22, or 21 to 22. If a foreigner wanted to own land and become an Israelite, they could undergo certain rites of citizenship themselves and marry into a family. The principle of not marrying outsiders was not the kind of racism that is still prevalent in some parts of the U.S. today, where the principle is that whites are not permitted to marry outside of their race or, 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 or outside of um, their, their clan or whatever for whatever reason. In Israel, it was entirely cultural. They could not marry outside of Israel, but they could marry outsiders that were willing to come into Israel. It had nothing to do with race or anything like that. A man could wed his daughter to a Canaanite if that Canaanite was willing to become an Israelite. It had nothing to do with race, but that, that's somewhat of an aside. But the point is that, that at the point of marriage, the foreigner had come under the protection of the law of Israel. This is also not to mention that a foreign servant always had the option of becoming an Israelite, which would then in turn end their status as a foreign servant, thereby effectively ending their perpetual status. In addition to this, we have no reason to think that a foreign servant would not be granted the same legal rights of a servant uh, of servanthood as any servant in Israel. There's nothing that states that if a foreign servant is beaten, for example, that the owner would not be required to pay for their care, forgive their debt, and let them free. There's nothing that states that a foreign slave could not be redeemed by another Israelite or their own family. The only thing that this passage shows is that a foreign servant does not get freed at the end of six years like a Jewish servant would. There's also nothing in this passage that states that a foreign uh, servant cannot be freed after he has worked off his debt. In fact, we can look at a passage like Deuteronomy 24, 17, 18, which states, quote, You shall not pervert justice, do an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. End quote. Well, what is this thing that the Lord was commanding Israel? We only need to look up on the page a few verses, starting in verse 10, where the Lord is giving laws to Israel, commanding that they must care for the poor and not take advantage of them, no matter if they were Israelites or not. It says, starting in verse 10, quote, When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. Then they will thank you, and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. Do not take advantage of a hired worker for the poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. 
I'm going to repeat that again. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner re, uh, residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset, because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. End quote. Notice here that God is actually telling the Israelites, like we saw last time in Job, that the Israelite may have God accusing them on behalf of the foreigner if they take advantage of them. This is hardly the xenophobia that Dawkins imagines. In this case, it seems obvious that a foreign servant was granted the same protection by the law as a Jewish servant. Just because someone was an alien, or literally a foreigner, the Israelites were not permitted to pervert or withhold justice from them. This verse in Deuteronomy indicates that, that the exact opposite of what atheists think it means who make these kinds of arguments and, and what they want to make it say, well, if, if they actually read it legitimately, they would see that they're simply skimming over and, and not reading the passage regarding the surrounding context. Number eight, Deuteronomy twenty-one fourteen. Uh, this is I'm I'm going to read uh, ten to fourteen, so you can get a little bit of the background too. When you go out to battle against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them away captive, and see among the captives a beautiful woman, and have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself, then you shall bring her home to your house, and you shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in your house and mourn for her father and mother a full month. And after that you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. It shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. But you, you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her, because you have humiliated her. Deuteronomy 21, uh, 10 to 14. Now, this passage is often cited by critics as an example of another abomination uh, of sex slavery, or, and, and that the Bible is somehow giving an admonition of this sex slavery, that is encouraging it. It's supposed by these critics that the verse allows for conquering Israelite armies to simply rape and pillage their way through villages and do with the women whatever they please. This, again, shows a total lack of reading comprehension on the part of the critic, this passage explicitly states that the women left after a campaign could not be considered as sex objects. This passage states that in order for an Israelite to take a woman from a campaign, he must take her as his wife, and in doing so is not permitted to have any sexual relations with her at the soonest for over a month. This is absolutely not permission for them to go rape and pillage and steal on sight any woman that they want while out to war and is in fact directly contrary to that. Notice that the passage states that if a man sees a beautiful woman and has a desire for her, he must take her as his wife. While the realities of the ancient world were brutal, the law actually serves to protect foreign women. For, for example, if a city was conquered, there was no wick. There, there were no welfare programs. There were no shelters. The women were left destitute, homeless, penniless, 
with, with no means for survival or inheritance and whatever band of marauders that fell on them would, would capture them and, and sell them into, into servitude and bondage. This law allows for lemon, women to not become sex slaves or rape victims, but to become Israelite wives with the full rights thereof. It also protects her from, from disgrace if the man later changes his mind. Right? He can't take her and then say that she was just a servant all along or whatever, and then trade her or sell her. In fact, the text explicitly says that he's not even permitted to quote-unquote mistreat her. He must let her go on her way free and clear to return to her family or whatever it is that she chooses. Right? This again is far from legal permission to rape and pillage. Number nine, Deuteronomy 23.15. Is this an above-ground railroad? Passage states, You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose, in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. End quote. Okay, like many other passages above, this one is hardly ever adduced on behalf of the skeptic, right? This law is clearly put in place on behalf of the servant and states that if one finds a runaway servant, that person is not only under no obligation to return him to their owner, but is in fact explicitly commanded not to hand them over, right? This law was likely put into place to protect slaves who were being abused by their masters, such as we saw in the first law that we looked at in Exodus 21. Until the city elders could rule on the issue, basically, the law is the logistics of how previous laws were to be carried out and enforced. If an owner treated a servant harshly, then that servant could flee and be given safe refuge, a place to live, food to eat, and he was free to choose where to live from there. The person who found this servant was not only enjoined to not return the slave, but also to take care and provide for them. This was not only radically different from all other ancient Near Eastern slave codes, but also antithetical to antebellum runaway slave laws in the West that not only demanded the return of the slave, but harsh punishments upon their return. In fact, this verse is found in, in the section on Deuteronomy dealing with the Eighth Commandment to not steal. Right? What makes this so interesting is that in all ancient Near Eastern cultures, besides Israel, to aid and abet a runaway slave was considered theft of property and was heavily punished, just like it was in antebellum uh, southern uh, African slave trade. In the Code of Hammurabi, the punishment for, for doing this was actually death. Right? It's interesting that here in Deuteronomy, when the author is expounding on theft, he begins the entire section before moving into actual laws about theft, stating that abetting a runaway slave is not only not theft, but is actually required by the law for the protection of the runaway servant. While some scholars have suggested that this would only apply to Jewish servants, the vast majority of scholars believe that this would apply to any and all runaway slaves. In fact, it's highly possible that this would apply to runaway slaves from other nations who had escaped to within Israel's border, making Israel a safe haven 
for runaway servants, no matter what their ethnicity or their culture. Now, as we've seen from the survey of the passages above, the Mosaic Law does not permit some kind of violent, hostile, oppressive, misogynistic form of slavery as the critics would like to portray that it does. The laws were not only universally improvements upon other ancient Near Eastern servant codes, but they also gave an undeniable right to life free of abuse or molestation, protected women from destitution, and allowed for numerous ways for a servant, foreign or otherwise, to gain their freedom. In several ways, we even saw, somewhat surprisingly, that the rights and the privileges of a servant exceeded that of a regular citizen, which is just unheard of. Right? In the next section, we're going to move into the New Testament and look at what it has to say about slavery during the time of Christ and how Christians are to view the institution of slavery today. We will also look at the role of Christianity in abolishing antebellum New World slavery in the West and ask whether or not their actions were analogous or antithetical to biblical teaching on servanthood. Thank you again for joining me on the Free Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, critiques, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or visit the Freedthinker group page on Facebook. Thank you again for joining us. God bless and Godspeed.